You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Garrison. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Cal Vandegrift. And on this episode of Let's Pharmanize, we're going to be talking about the history of the pharmacopoeia. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. So I kind of gave away the topic when I gave you guys the intro. But for those that don't know, a pharmacopoeia is basically a big book of drugs that tells us what a drug is, what it does, what its safe dosage range is, and sort of how it can be compounded. Pretty all-inclusive. It has pretty much anything you could need, right? Yeah, it's pretty all-inclusive. But it wasn't always like that. I'll take you back in time in a second. But just to gauge sort of where we're at, do you typically use um, something like Lexicomp or Micromedics, or do you go back to the actual United States pharmacopoeia. Bruh, I haven't opened a pharmacopoeia in my life. Yeah, USP is foreign to me. It's straight up micromedics or bust. Or Google. <laughs> WebMD. I mean, dude, I just Google stuff. Like, uh, I don't have time to be looking up apps and Lexicomp and stuff. I mean, fair enough, I guess. I just wouldn't do that in medical practice. No, in real life. Yeah. No. But... Before we had Google and Micromedics and Lexicomp and the USP, China had in about 200 BC, so this is like the, okay. the end of the Warring States period, the beginning of the Qin Dynasty. BC in China. Is this when uh, WebMD came out? Yeah, exactly. Uh, they called it something else. They called it the Shenong Ben Kaojing, which I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation horribly. But it was a three-part sort of encyclopedia of all the drugs that they had at the time, that they n- knew what they did, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. So the first book was all, like, stuff that was pretty safe. Um, interestingly enough, they put licorice in the safe category, even though there is a threshold for toxicity of that. For sure, yeah. Another, the second book that they did was like, okay, here's some drugs that you can use that do have some useful effects, but they can be toxic. Mm -hmm. In this category, you'd find stuff like uh, cinnamon, like ginseng, uh, sort of what you would think of traditional Chinese medicine. And the third book was like, no-go drugs. These are like super strong and you really shouldn't use them. There's stuff like uh, rhubarb, hemlock, that kind of stuff. Right. And that was sort of standard in China. It migrated over to Japan and to India and a lot of the what we would call the East. And that was really the only formal pharmacopoeia for a really long time. Of course, we've looked at the history of apothecaries and alchemy before. So people all had their own little recipes for their own cures. But the the next big advancement actually comes from a Middle Eastern medical doctor who is named Ibn Sina, Romanized Avicenna. Mm But his was a really big revolution because he took the concepts from Hippocrates and from Galen of sort of like the humors and added on something called the temperaments. Okay. So he wrote five books on medicine 
two of which are about drugs and three of which are about like anatomy and medical theory. So his theory was that your temperament is based on like if your organs are happy or not. <laughs> so if you were like really inflamed and had rashes everywhere, it meant like you weren't eating right or your liver wasn't happy or something else was wrong. It was very like generalized sort of stuff. How's that liver, Calvin? It, my, I mean, my liver's working fine. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, are you yeah. are you sure? After your twenty first birthday party, twenty first twenty first birthday was is something. <laughs> but I think I think the liver's still uh, still holding up. Still happy. That's good. Good to hear. It and give me ten years, and then it'll be cirrhotic. <laughs> yeah. And then he obviously took the concept of humors from Galen and Hippocrates. Are you familiar with the concept of humors? Um, those are like fluids in the body that need to be balanced, right? Like spirits, sort of like an essence? Yeah. Okay. That's the basic principle is you have blood, a yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm, I think, is the fourth one. Anyway, there's four humors, and if they're out of balance, you have weird diseases. Right. So that was sort of the basic uh, basis of his medical theory. It gets interesting, though, because in his second book, he covers human anatomy in depth to a point that had not previously been done. Because for a lot of history in the West and to a degree in the East as well, uh, desecrating a corpse was considered not a good thing. So you couldn't really study anatomy if you didn't cut open a person, right? Yeah. But he accurately stated that not only was the heart not like some spiritual mystery thing, he described that you have to have blood come into the heart from the rest of the body, go through the lungs, come back to the heart, and then pump to the rest of the body. Wow. And this was in, like, the 11th century. Jeez. This was 500 years before the Renaissance, and he described that. It's pretty advanced. He also described a couple other anatomical things with some pretty good precision. Um, female reproductive anatomy was one of the highlights that he uh, was actually accurate on. Mm-hmm. Of course, some of the reasoning behind doing certain procedures was wrong, but the actual anatomical information was surprisingly accurate for the day. And people have speculated like how he was able to do that. Um, most people don't think that he went around like grave robbing like we did in the 19th century in Britain and America yeah. to get anatomy. They hypothesized that he more than likely did a lot of animal autopsy and sort of analogized it to the human body. Mm-hmm. And that was his second book. Now, his third book, this is where it gets really spicy. It's about 850 non-compounded drugs. Mm -hmm. So these are drugs that are just purely from one source. That's a lot of drugs, 850? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Most of them are herbal. There are some that are mineral, some that are um, natural products. But these are all considered, quote-unquote, pure substances. And he had a method for testing whether or not a drug was efficacious, which was a completely new concept at the time. Because no one was testing things up until now. They were just like, well, my great-great-granddad said that that was really good for pneumonia, so I'm going to treat you with this thing. Mm-hmm. But now Avicenna had a set of rules that you had to abide by before you could definitively prove that a substance was useful for a disease. Okay. So let's go over them and see if they sound familiar. So, one, you must have the substance in its most pure form that you can. So if you take it from a tree, you can't, like, mix it with the bark. You can't mix it with the leaves. You have to just have, like, the berry or the fruit inside. Seems intuitively obvious. 
Yeah, but not always. The next rule was to prove that a drug was efficacious, it had to be a single patient, a single drug, and a single condition. You couldn't test something on someone with a complicated condition. Right. The next one was you had to test the drug on someone who had a different condition to see if it had any effect on them. And if it did have a correlated effect on both people, like it treated two different diseases, you had to be suspicious that it wasn't actually treating either. Mm -hmm because it could have just been coincidence. The fourth one um, that you need to monitor and record the time effect of a drug. So like if you give it at 6 a.m., what does it do at 7, 8, 9, 10, et cetera? Right. There has to be a dose-dependent relationship, and this is a big one yeah. because we still do that today Absolutely. in our drug testing. If there's not a dose-dependent relationship, your drug doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And to, to see that someone was doing this a thousand years ago is pretty spectacular. That is pretty, that's really incredible. He pretty much like created the basis for like case studies, and we would build everything that we have now, like even for RCTs on those parameters. And then even though like it spread to like a much wider group of patients, Mm -hmm. And then his last two rules are maybe not super relevant today, but you could only test it on um, multiple people with the same condition, mm -hmm. like which makes sense, but sometimes that's not what is feasible. Yeah. And then you couldn't test things on animals and extrapolate that to humans. You had to test it on humans for that this method to be valid in his eyes. Okay. Which, I mean, I understand, but nowadays when we can do accurate animal testing, yeah. we can sort of disregard that one a little bit but very much ahead of his time. So the fourth book details a bunch of just very complicated things which we would classify as infectious diseases now, but back then they really didn't know the cause. Right. And the last book is a, a list of 800 compounded medications. <laughs> Holy crap. This guy was a madman. I think he spent like 23 or 24 years writing this book, like this series of books on medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's just incredible to me that like m most of the stuff that he wrote was like, okay, eh, limited value today, but the methods that he used to determine like what worked, what didn't, super resilient and last to this day. And pharmacopoeias really didn't develop past that for about another 700 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you had uh, the Renaissance uh, thinkers who would adopt some of the principles and you know translate it to Italian and French and stuff like that. But most of the same concepts were the same for many, many years. And then we moved to the national pharmacopoeias, okay. which is this is when we start getting really formalized. It's like, okay, what's the drug? What's the dosage? What's the dosing interval? How do you compound it? What are the purity standards? This is when we start getting really specific about what we're putting in people's bodies. Unfortunately, no one took these seriously for about 200 years mm -hmm. because they were like, ah, it's all quackery anyway. Just give them whatever. <laughs> Then we move into the U.S. pharmacopoeia because people started to recognize we can't just shove random amounts of opium into people and expect them to get better. Uh -huh. <laughs> Cal knows this one pretty well because he did a, a whole episode on laudanum, but we know that the USP was largely ignored for a long time because you had all these patent medicines that were not approved by the USP and people still took them in large quantities. Yeah. So that shows you kind of how little clout it had up until we really passed like the Pure Food and Drug Act and all that kind of stuff. God, don't you miss the good old days when you could just give anyone laudanum and it would just be fine? Like, <laughs> they're just, that's, that's what you give them. You just laudanum, no matter what. The, Got a cough? Get some laudanum. Gold flakes and the pearls in it, too. Mm-hmm. I mean. Crunchy. You don't really care about that pneumonia when you're drunk and high. Heck yeah, man. <laughs> Hook me up. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, with the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act, people really started taking the USP standards seriously because they're like, oh, well, now we actually have to make these to a specific standard. Uh, maybe we should sort of look at you know what's been studied up to this point. And typically, each country had their own pharmacopoeia, and they had completely different recommendations. Oh. This is very Wild West. Do we give someone 325 milligrams of aspirin? Do we give someone three grams of aspirin? Like, that's the difference some of these pharmacopoeias had was literally like 10 times the dosing difference. Three grams. Yeah. That's insane. That's what I'm saying. That's how you get someone like, uh, who was it, Alexei Romanov? Yeah. Who was bleeding to death because Mm -hmm. they were probably giving him significant quantities of aspirin. Yeah, no doubt. And that sort of got standardized after World War II when the Soviets actually came up with their own pharmacopoeia. And that was the first sort of universal pharmacopoeia for a large section of the world. Mm -hmm. Because it went from, I think, East Germany all the way to the Pacific Ocean in uh, Russia. So like the Kamchatka Sea, like that whole region had one pharmacopoeia. The EU quickly followed suit in 69 with their own European pharmacopoeia, very similar in nature to the Soviet one. And then sort of we flip-flop back and forth for a while on what to do after those two. And in 1990, we had a joint effort between the U.S., EU, and Japan to create sort of an international template for Mm -hmm. pharmacopoeia, which then in turn led to a lot of these private pharmacopoeias like Lexicomp, like Micromedics, um, and stuff like that, where today a lot of the private ones are way more basic information, more medically relevant ones, right? Yeah. But the national pharmacopoeias like the USP and the EU pharmacopoeia, I'm not even sure what Russia uses now that the Soviet Union isn't a thing. Mm-hmm. They probably have their own. But a lot of those are much more focused on preparation, on purity, on manufacturer standards than they are necessarily for clinical use. Mm. That's sort of where the split happened between the private pharmacopoeias and the national ones. And ever since... That's sort of been the state of things. Yeah. You got to think that the boom in 1990 of all the pharmacopoeias had something to do with the birth of the internet and being able to put data and information like that, medical information, into a system that could keep it for you and you didn't have to chart everything yourself and and type everything out. It was just a great place in the digital media. You could have all this information rather than somewhere deep in a filing cabinet, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, sort of the previous version of that was Avicenna's Canon of Medicine, that big five-book series that I talked about earlier, because those would be handwritten by scribes and then distributed to doctors who would write their own notes in the margins. If you ever look up a picture of one of the copies, you literally will see the lines of Arabic, and then you will see like scribbles in like four other languages, all in the margins. It's crazy. Um, I'm actually trying to get a, a set for myself, but it's extre- extremely expensive to find in English. Yeah. Um, I think even in Arabic, they're significantly uh, cost prohibitive to buy. Wow. And you want to own one of these? I do, because it's one of the most important pieces of medical history. That's because cool. it's it's the first book that accurately portrayed human anatomy. And a lot of the drugs in there have commentary being like, hey, this is garbage. Don't use it. Like, But it's in there. Yeah. It's not omitted because it's useless. It's like, hey, we tried this. It sucks. Mm-hmm. 
So that's, I think that's how we got so many in there. I think total it was like 1,500 medications between the two books. Well, you know, it, it just gives you a unique perspective on like people who grew up in the 60s and the 70s and, and the disparity between two doctors could have been so vast, like with one who went to one university versus another one. The difference in treatment that you might get from one doctor to another is just is extreme. And whereas now, you know, um, with all these insurance plans and you have a whole organization, you have a system that you can fall under. It doesn't really matter what doctor you go to. You know, that's just it's just a, a tale of the time, I guess you could say, because uh, I mean, nowadays, every doctor in the United States should be following the same guidelines, the same diagnostic criteria. But back in the 60s and 70s, it seems a little bit more wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. During that time, there's a lot more free reign because we have a lot of these newer innovations in medicine in that time. But way back, like in the 11th century, you had like one or two authoritative sources. Like you had Hippocrates, you had Galen, you had um, Avicenna, and that was it. Like everyone else who said something about medicine was either a footnote in history or they were just flat out wrong and they were ignored. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a lot of... Uh, similarity now between treatment plans, but we also had that back in the day, except ours now are significantly more effective. Mm -hmm. Cool. What's your current favorite resource for my, drugs? My current favorite resource is probably Lexicom. Lexicom. Incorrect. Incorrect. It's Google. <laughs> Wikipedia. Specifically the print version of Lexicom. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.